your brother's hungry? Don't you know your sister's lonely? Don't you know there's babies crying? Don't you know your brother's dying? Greetings. I'm Dr. Anthony Smith of Alashe Center for Enrichment, and welcome to Black Folks Do Therapy, where we endeavor to challenge you to think critically about your mental health and overall wellness. Our goal is to inspire you to align your actions and values so that you might live your life fully 86,400 seconds every single day. We do this in part by asking questions and raising issues that you may not have previously considered. Ultimately, we encourage you to do those things that help you to live your best life consistently, always working towards balance. Greetings and welcome to the next episode of Black Folks Do Therapy. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Smith, and today I am joined by my colleague and friend, good friend from a brother from another mother, Dr. Adi Jamu, who's a developmental psychologist out in Irvine, UC Irvine, California. And we're going to talk today about a number of different topics related to Black psychology and, and how, you, how we do Black psychology. And we're going to talk about both of our one of our, I know it's my favorite book. Is it your favorite book as well? Uh, 2000 Seasons is my 2000, favorite. Okay, well, same author. We, we both, mm -hmm. the, the author of this book is both of our favorite authors. So we're going to ch chop that book up a bit and talk about some insightful things related to psychology. Um, but let me welcome you. Good, good, good evening. How are you doing today? I'm good, bro, man. Good to, good to be with you always uh, and good to have uh these conversations in a public, well, conversations we've had over over the decades uh, in a public forum, and hopefully, you know, uh, by sharing these these this conversation publicly, that other people can be blessed as we have blessed one another over the years. Um, indeed, it indeed, up. indeed. I remember, you know, we met at a black psychology a black psychologist conference. It was both of our first conference, right. um, and we came as students. Um, you were a student of Dr. Parham and Dr. White out at UC Irvine, and you were in the lobby with Dr. Parham, and I came, and we had to wait for our rooms, and we had just got off the plane in Denver. We were in Denver, Colorado, right, right. and Dr. Parham had, had convinced me to go to Southern Illinois University, so I knew him um, that way, and he introduced us, and we began talking about African self-consciousness. Do you remember that conversation? Mm -hmm. Dr. Cambon, Kobe Cambon, Dr. Right, Cambon's right, book. Right. And we just started talking and next thing you know, we hung out the whole conference and right. uh, we've been best friends ever since. And, and same birthdays, November 18th. Yeah, <laughs> all yeah, of these. yeah, I remember that, you know, uh, coming to the conference and, and seeing all of the folks who, all the luminaries that I had read about uh, Aouidi Azibo, Baba Kobe Cambone, who's now an ancestor, Baba Asa Hillier, who's now an ancestor, and uh, and being really just in awe, like you know, like like all these folks you read about, like here they were right in front of you, and they were just like regular folks, and they were very accessible, and uh, and I remember, um, you know, us talking and just like just like uh, our connection right away, you know, like like you just knew, okay, you this person gonna be your friend, you know, for, for a long time, and it just uh, just connected. It was just it wasn't anything we ever talked about. We just just hung out like everywhere, everywhere yeah. you were that I was at, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, 
and uh, and uh, even to the point that that uh, when I was driving back, when I was headed to Howard for my doctoral program, we were doing the internship. We drove cross country together in, mm-hmm. in the 1981 Honda Civic. <laughs> <laughs> right, from Los Angeles all the way to DC. <laughs> yes, yes, sir, yes, sir. Went through the mountains the of was, yeah, yeah, we put some miles on that. And I was car. like, look, we can't. Yeah, I was like, look, man, we can't turn the we can't turn the air conditioner. We're going through Vegas. It's 107 degrees. Like, you can't turn the heat on, man, because the air conditioner might, might cause the car to cut off. <laughs> and like, and the rule was, we had a money to, to stop and sleep. So the rule was, if you ain't driving, you need to be sleeping. If right. you ain't sleeping, you need to be driving. Right. You know. Yeah. Uh, but that was that was that was that was the beginning. So it was the beginning of, of your start in in, uh, in Durham, North Carolina, and my start in, in Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and to think all Good these time. years later, we're now um, some of the we moved up on the rung in terms of uh, our ability to talk about psychology and and hopefully share some things that help folks who are coming after us in a way that we were helped so pr- tremendously by all those um, leaders and, and and wonderful psychologists that you named and just the organization as a whole. You know, is it, it was very nurturing to us as students. And um, I know you went on to become chair of the student circle for ABCI and did some wonderful things there and have a legacy in, in terms of establishing that. And you've seen the student circle, part of the Association of Black Psychologists grow um, to where it is now. Um, and just to watch the progress, uh, you know, some of the leaders who started the Association mm-hmm. of Black Psychologists, to see them transition into elderhood now mm-hmm. and they were on the front lines fighting um, mm-hmm. white folks in APA who didn't want to give them a voice and they say we're going to start our own thing and then we come along and contribute our part to mm-hmm. it and now other folks are coming along and it's continuing to to grow and develop and we continue to do this work trying to bring healing to our people to our community um, and in and, and the ways that we can do it so it's it's I sit yeah. back and think about it sometimes. It's just it's just pretty remarkable. Yeah, it was look, I think about the you know, the things that you know, one of the things that ABCI did was especially the convention was it was a place where you got nurtured and you got loved on and you got encouragement. Um, because most of us in programs that were, you know, we were one of few in those right. programs. Right. And so it was also a place that you could come and see other other students who, who were similarly situated. I remember in the early days, it would be like five or six deep to room. Right, because you know, right. and how much fun that was, and 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 the, and the camaraderie that was developed around um, serving the community, right? And it was it was sort of it was sort of in the water, like like everybody there was there because they had a commitment to Black folks, even though we had uh, varying um, ideological orientations within the association. And you know, and now looking back, is you know one of the the, the challenges is that you know as you watch um, folks get older. You also come in contact with your own mortality, right? Because right. you come in as a young buck, and you're watching now folks who you knew when they were younger, get you know moving into you know elder elder status, and just how that you know how that how that shifts. And then you look up, and now all of a sudden you you the person that was in that in that position that they were in when you first came into the association, right? right. And how you you know and trying to find your way as both being you know, I mean, an elder or or youthful elder at least. Um, and just you know how that what that has meant and, and watching the generational shift in terms of how people respond to the association and 
and all of those things. So um, it was a blessing you know, to come into the AB side the time that I came into it. Yeah. Um, because I had, the, I had, the, we still got the best of of the founding, the founders of the association. While they still had vitality, they could still play bitwiz and spades late at night and talk trash and all that other stuff, right? Right. Uh, we got, the, we got the, we got the, the benefit of all of that, and um, so in, in many ways, we, we, you know, we directly linked to that founding lineage in a way that the younger generations are not. And so I'm, I'm, I'm I've always been thankful for it. For the time that I, you know, that I came in to the association, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. So, so let's since we're at this point, let's 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 um pick up. I had I was going to ask you some questions about this anyway. Let's just jump right into that. Um, so when you came in, you had been working with uh, Dr. White, Dr. Joseph White, and Dr. Thomas Parham, right. and you were you were a student of theirs, and right. they had written a book called The Psychology of Blacks, and right. Um, I knew that book in undergraduate school um, and had read it because you know I was moving along this path. You actually worked with them. Uh, talk a little bit about how you come to have a relationship with them and the evolution of that re- relationship to the point where when they revised the book, you were asked to be a, contrib- a third author on the book. Yeah, so uh, I came to, to Irvine uh, on basketball scholarship. Uh, so I was, you know, I came to college. I was concerned with chasing two things: balls and skirts, right? Basketballs and skirts. Mm-hmm. And um, Dr. Parham ran this group called "What's Going On," which was a group for young black men. And I would come from time to time in the group, and he in the group he always talk about. He'd always, you know, celebrate uh, black men who who were heading off to graduate school and so on and so forth that he had worked with. And so one day I said to him, I said, man, look, you know, it's like, you, you know, you, you big up on all these cats with like the three, five, three, sixes, like you back and win, you back in the winning squad. I never hear you like talking about folks with like the two, five, two, sixes, you know, how come you, you know, you're not really, you know, you're not really trying to work with them. And so Dr. P was like, well, you know, Dr. P from, from the neighbors. So, so we, I put him on blast. He said, well, look, you know, I reached out to you like three or four times. He's made it personal. And you just, you didn't have no interest. He's like, it's not, it's not like I don't. I picked, so I, I picked the people who want to work, want to do the work, and you didn't seem like you was interested in doing the work, and which I wasn't. And so, uh, so uh, fast forward, I had graduated. I was working in the department store. I didn't really have any options, and so I come to Dr. P, and I was like, "Yo, man, you know, I want to, you know, I, I, you know, I feel like if I don't, you know, if I don't, something don't click for me, I'm gonna end up going back to the streets, you know." And I was trying to, I was trying to guilt him into working with me. And Dr. P was like, you know, okay, well, just call my secretary, make an appointment. You know, I talked to you. Like, I poured my whole heart out. He was like, he was not not moved. Mm-hmm. So, so I made the appointment. I came and I came to talk to him. And uh, he's like, so, you know, wh- wh- why are you why are you want you know why are you want to be a psychologist? And I said, well, you know, looking at you, you know, you got a fine ass wife. You drive a Benz. Don't look like you work too hard. I, I can get out with that, you know, <laughs> like. He said, "What about psychology?" I'm like, well, "Yeah, that too." But you know, I'm looking at I'm looking I'm looking at the big picture here. Like you look at you, you your wife is you look at you doing good. I'm I'm you know. He said, "Well, you know, it's more than psychology. Maybe psychology not it for you, whatever." I said, "No, I think I I can do this." So he said, "Okay, well, look, here's some books." He put three books off the shelf. One of them was uh, African Psychology by Dr. Nobles, Africanity and the Black Family, and uh, Wretched of the Earth. He said, "You know, read these and you know make appointment to talk to my you know make an appointment to see me in like three weeks." And we'll, you know, see what your interests are, and we'll go from there. 
So I came back about five days later. I put the books down. I was like, I'm, you know, I'm done. Like, you know, what else you got? And so that people looked at me like that side eye, like, man, like, Negro, you ain't about to play me. I, you know, I didn't seen you use it for five years. I never saw a book in your hand once in five years. You was on campus. He didn't say it, but you could tell that's what he was thinking. So he, so he, pulled, he pulled five more books off the shelf. He said, look, I'm giving you these books. Do not come back here until you read these books. All right, man. So I snatched the books, you know, roll out. And I come back about a week later. And I gave him the books. So I read the books. And then he got angry. He's like, man, you think this is a game? You think you're just going to play me like you got I read the books. He snatched the book off. He's like, okay, what about this book? I said, well, you know, so-and-so makes an argument here, but on page 35 and third paragraph, second sentence, he says this, which contradicts what he said. That. I said that's, he's scrambling, looking at the book. He put the book down and snatched another book. What about this? And I started another book. And then he just, he just get out of my office. <laughs> what? Like, you know, like, so I was, I was, I was picking my book back. I'm all dejected. I walk out the under and I just like, they said, make an appointment with Peggy to see me next week. I come in, now I'm angry, right? The next time I'm angry, because like, okay, you flashed on me twice. So I come in, I'm like, he said, I want to apologize to you for, you know, you know, Dr. P is very even tempered. It takes a lot to get Dr. P hot. So for flashing me, da da da. He said, he says, you realize you got a gift. You, you know, he, you know, he said, grad school is hard for me. You could read stuff, you could read fast, you could remember stuff, like reverse you know really what kind of gift that is in graduate school? How many people kill to have this gift? And you sat on this for like five years. You never did anything, you know. And he said, I was just frustrated with the fact you're wasting this, wasting this talent. He says, but if you're serious, I work with you. I said, I'm serious. So he, he said, okay, I, I, I teach a class, you know, introduction to African American psychology. You're gonna be my TA. So I said, okay. So I was his TA, and the whole time I was always prepared. I was always, I was, I was better prepared than he was. So at the end of at the end of the class, you know, at the end of the quarter, he said he, in front of the class, he said, "Look, you know, I work with a lot of students." And he said, "This the this is probably the most gifted student I've ever worked with." I'm like, "Okay, well, who are you about to shout out?" And he says, "I never worked with a student that had this much raw talent." And he says, "And and I want to honor him by um, taking him to A B side, uh, you know." Uh, and then he called my name, and I was shocked. And so 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 as a reward for working as his TA. He paid for me to go to AB side. So that's how I ended up at AB side. And that's how we, you know, we we ended up having such a close relationship, right? And then, you know, a few weeks later, he invited Dr. Noble to campus to speak. And me and Dr. I started asking some questions about Dr. Noble's book. And so me and Dr. Noble were going back and forth, right? Like, you know, and, and so I thought maybe Dr. Noble was offended because you know, you know, back in the day, I was very arrogant. So like we was just like, you know, I disagree, and here's why, da da da. We're going back and forth. Right. So uh, get the AB side, you know, meet you in, the, in that famous session where Dr. Noble's in there talking, and people ain't understand what he's saying. So I'm translating, like I'm like, you know, because Dr. Noble be like up in the stratosphere, so I'm actually translating, and it's like, you know, all the other psychologists, like, well, who's this dude that's basically breaking down Dr. Noble's work, so on and so forth. So that was that was the, that was the the uh, genesis of it, and then you know later on, Dr. Noble's reached out to me and offered me the job in McClyman, and that was sort of like the beginning, of, like the whole graduate school process, you know, by then you were already, you were already on your journey, you were already in, in at Carbondale, and I was still trying to find my way um, to get into the process. So, you know, when, when we started, you know, by, by the time I got to Howard in graduate school, I would, every summer I would come back and I would work with Dr. Parham, and I was running a rights of passage program. And um, we were talking about the book, and so I had, so Dr. Dr. Parham gave me a draft of the outline, and so I gave him some notes maybe about eight or nine pages of notes about things I thought that the book could use that would improve the book. 
And so he and Dr. White looked at the notes and they're like, yeah, these are great notes. You you write this. <laughs> like, you know, we already got what we want, right? Like, this is all great. You should write this. So that's how I ended up, you know, so that's how I ended up getting involved in the in, in the book. It's like, yeah, all, all this stuff here, all these topics, you, everything here is on point. But you should do that. So right. that's how, that's how, and then, you know, that's how I got involved in, in, in that project, you know. Okay. Okay. So what was it like working with Dr. White? Doctor, you know, so Dr. White was always, you know, um, and, and for those who don't so know, he, he was one of the founders of the Association of Black Psychologists. He was probably one of the first black psychologists. Um, yeah, so he, he was one, he's one he's one of the one of uh, maybe the fifth uh, clinical psychologist in the state of California. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, many people consider him the god, godfather of black psychology. Right. Because he was the one who really popularized the idea. That if you want to study study black people, you should study it using their own cultural frame of reference and not the frame of reference of you know somebody else. You know, he says it's difficult, if not impossible, to understand the psychological worlds of black people using psychological norms that have been standardized on white folks. Right? And right. He wrote that in Ebony. Right. So it took off. So the idea of black psychology really took off. And so in many ways, now he was one of the founders of the Association of Black Psychologists, but he's literally the godfather and the popularizer of the notion of black psychology. Mm -hmm. And um, and my relationship was always with uh, with Dr. White, my relationship was more of a mentor-mentee relationship. With Dr. P, is more of a father-son relationship. So Dr. White and I, we often talked about the work. With Dr. P and I, we talked about life, you know, what it takes to buy a home. Like he really invested in developing me as, as a, a man. So. A lot of times, me and Dr. White would talk about conceptual stuff, like you know, racial identity, and how does this work? And um, and if I had a, a, if I didn't understand a particular concept, like we work on a book, if I didn't understand, because again, you know, you got three authors, but the but the themes in the book have to cohere. So you have to make sure that you understand, you know, the conceptual framework that other folks are uh, coming from, so that you can write in a way that um, it just flows smoothly. So as you read the book. You know, it's hard for you to figure out which author wrote which section, right? Because the, the things right. are the same. So a lot of times in that process, I would just check with them and say, well, look, you know, what about this? Or, you know, the seven psychological strengths, how does this work? And if I want to talk about my art, how would I sort of, you know, find a way to sort of, so those were, were our, our conversations um, in, you know, in terms of dealing with the book. And by the time we got to the third edition, um, Doc, you know, because it was Dr. White was a, was um, was second author on was it the third edition? Yeah, the, the third edition. Dr. White was a, was the second author, and I was the third. The fourth edition, I got moved up to second author because by then I was writing. You know, me and Dr. P had pretty much booked the book in tandem, and um, and uh, Dr. White was really there as like you know sort of like as the as the the, the elder statesman to make mm -hmm. sure that you know we, we consistent. But the challenge of you know of doing co-author books like that is that <clears throat> people got to be on the same page, and if they're not, they got to find ways to um, present the differences so that it doesn't come across as being antagonistic. So somebody has to be the person who has the final the final edit, and that was Dr. Parham. So once you turn in your chapters and stuff, Dr. Parham is the one who had to okay look at everything and make sure everything flowed together. Um, and it was good. I actually got to, for the fourth edition, I actually took, I actually came to California for like two months because of Howard. I came to California for like two months to, to just work on the book. And, and, and he and I in the office just going back and forth and, and 
and getting certain things kind of tight. Okay, good, good. Yeah, that's some of that stuff I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm learning some things too. Um, so, okay. So you get your foot in the door there in terms of doing some publishing and you, you've done some other things and, right. and, and finding your way around. Um, you ultimately finish up, you decide to go into developmental and how do you bridge the gap between that and what you're currently doing? So, you know, as I shared, shared with you many times, like um, in the beginning, I should say that, you know, I should say when people ask me, you know, why did I become a psychologist? And I said, well, look, if Dr. Parham would have been a botanist, I'd be talking to you about the secret lives of plants. <laughs> like, <laughs> I became a psychologist because Dr. Parham was a psychologist. And uh, if, if, if you're keeping it real, that's, you know, I mean, I looked up to him. It was a good pathway. And but, I, but what I was what I was clear about was I didn't enjoy the clinical and counseling aspect of psychology. I would have done it, um, but that, I didn't enjoy it. And, and I didn't think that I would enjoy it. And so what I was interested in, I've always been interested in, is about how things work. I've always, you know, I like to work with my hands. So I've always been interested in the interiors of things, how things work. And developmental psychology was interested me because I could understand how people develop over time. And as a, you know, and so as somebody who is really more scientifically oriented, that appealed to me. And so, you know, I was very much interested in like, so why do people do the things that they do? How does, you know, what are the, what are the development of benchmarks for, uh, from a young boy to a man? What are the challenges that people have? How do those things work? How does it happen in the context of culture? And so um, Wade Boykin, uh, Dr. Wade Boykin is at Howard and he was doing you know, work around, you know, Afrocultural ethos work and education. And um, I thought that that would be a good place for me to, to do my work, right? You know, I mean, Howard, if you're going, you know, in fact, I remember having a conversation with Dr. Nobles, you know, trying to decide about where I was going to go. He said, well, look, if you want to work with black people, Howard is a place to go. Where else you going to go? It's like every issue in the black world exists at Howard. So if you're going to work with black people, you should work someplace where you're going to be able to have access to that. And, um, and so in developmental psychology really allows you to think about how things come together, how, how, how you build things, how you take them apart, how does culture work, mm -hmm. how does identity work. Um, and that part to me, you know, I was always interested in explanation was helpful, right? Because human beings are evolutionary beings. They have a trajectory, right? There are certain things that we expect for someone developmentally at 30 that we don't expect at 15, right? And that much of the, much of the things that we know about uh, education really developed out of developmental psychology, right? You know, the, the ideas about K through 12 and, and, and um, when kids should start school and, and what should be their, their developmental trajectory. Uh, what should we expect in terms of their learning benchmarks at a certain age? All that came out of really developmental psychology. And so for me, once I recognized that I didn't have to just do education, I could, you know, developmental psychology was just a good way of understanding human beingness in total. Uh, I was I was excited about that prospect. And so that's what that's what really motivated me. And then thinking about black people, I was like, well, essentially like, well, how do black how do people develop in a context where they are under enormous oppressive force? Mm -hmm. Um how do they develop a sense of identity? How do they develop their resilience? How do they develop their culture? How do um, black men and black women develop uh, to be healthy adults in the context of, of a system that is anchored in misanthropy and oppression and anti-blackness and racism and all, you know, uh, almost a virulent kind of toxicity. 
So those are the things that really, you know, motivate me because I was interested in, in trying to explore those questions. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm interested in, so there's developmental psychology just for human beings, period, right? And we all have mm -hmm. to go from child to adult to elderly, boom. But then there's developmental psychology as it relates to Black folk, which has a different right. spin on it, right? So what are the nuances that are important to understand as it relates to Black people, particularly in this time? I think there are some, you know, with, with what's going on in society right now, I think there are some things that stand out as important under the, under the um, umbrella of the developmental psychology that we could use in terms of looking at ourselves and how we can be our best selves. What would you, what would you say about that? Well, so I, I think one of the things that, that um, especially black developmentalists did was really to talk about uh, development in context, right? So, uh, because a lot of times when we talk about uh, development, we talk about it devoid of context, right? So for example, you're talking about the development of fish, right? And in the, the fish tank, and the water is polluted, and you only focus on the fact that the fish are sick, but not the water. You're not really developing a good developmental um, assessment, right? Because part of the ability to be able to say, okay, look, these are the challenges that this fish is having to develop in toxic water, as opposed to here are here's the natural trajectory of a fish that's in a in a in a, in a stream or a pond or an ocean. And the challenge for Black folks was that we that that a lot of the developmental theories did not take into consideration racism and white supremacy and the ways in which those things disfigure uh, our developmental trajectory. And so, you know, uh, some folks like um, Wade Boykin, um, Harry McAdoo, I'm trying to think of uh, um, um, some other folks I'm, that I'm blanking on right now. Who are really instrumental uh, in uh, Amos Wilson? Who are really instrumental in really uh, positioning our understanding of development in context, right? So you're going to talk about, and some of this is still ongoing, right? We still don't really have a good develop. We don't still, still have good developmental theories of how Black men and Black women develop in the society, right? In part because a lot of our energy has been focused on trying to to deconstruct all the racist stuff that has been sort of put forward to sort of tell people about who we are. Right. So that deconstruction, that deconstruction work has really taken up a lot of our effort. And now it's really time for the construction. Like so, right. you know, and uh, and here is that there's um uh, uh Tommy, why am I back on Tommy's name right now? But but Tommy's read the, read the book uh, Man Not, which he really tries to uh, lay out you know some of the challenges that black men have. And I think that's the next stage here, because if you don't really look at um, development in context, what you end up doing is pathologizing black folks. Right? Right. You end up you end up creating a mechanism where everything they do is a form of sickness because you're using European Americans as the standard framework, and um, and that's problematic. So I think that so part of the challenge for us is still to really ask some questions about. Okay, so what should we expect of somebody, of a young man that's 21 in a society where your economic opportunities are limited, that you are under the thumb of the carceral state uh, in which you may not have had all of the opportunities to develop fully? Uh, what, should we, what should we expect of somebody at 21 as opposed to simply saying there's a benchmark that everybody at 21 should be doing X, Y, and Z? Mm -hmm. um, you know, conversely, the same thing. The same thing is true for for women. Like you know, given the challenges that that 
black girls have in society that uh, we tend to, society tends to see them as being older than they are, that they are hypersexualized, that they are, that they are viewed in ways that they don't actually get to enjoy girlhood, uh, the prevalence of sexual assault and sexual abuse. And so given all these factors that, that young black girls have to navigate to get to womanhood, how is that? How is that shaping the developmental trajectory? Like, what do we know about that, uh, and what can we do to sort of uh, reframe that? And it, so, so, so a lot of it is about okay. Well, look, if developmentalists can come up with good theories, then it means that that there are less and less folks that are actually coming to see you, right? right. So, because right. part of the challenge is that you know, uh, the main reason, one of the main reasons people end up in therapy is because of all the things that they weren't able to you know, the obstacles that they've had as they were growing up or in their development and and trying to work those out. And so the therapeutic process comes as an aid in that process. So there's a way in which, you know, both developmentalists and, and uh, counseling and clinical psychology and other therapists can work hand in hand so that you actually are developing um, theories and frameworks that, that help us understand how folks are developing, help us develop um, ameliorative strategies and then also, you know, to figure out, okay, well, how do we deal with, with certain kinds of traumas that might be unique to our experience here in America? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it, it's changing the language, changing the way we are going about developing the theory, developing the different concepts and making it a powerful one that is internal as opposed to one that, that is in response to what has been by this, um, dominant um, society that would make it a negative thing. Uh, so changing the verbiage, but at the same time, having to fight the fight of folks that are still moving and creating things to move against the black community. It's a, it's a double-edged um, situation, it sounds like to me, that we gotta be able to do both, fight them off while also build our own thing out. Yeah, and I think I think that's the problem. That's the challenge of, of every black person in the country is trying to do something good for black people, mm -hmm. right? How do you how do you engage in sort of harm reduction strategies, even as you're trying to create spaces for authentic expressions of human beingness for African people? You know, the book I was mentioning was Tommy Curry. Um, he, he also went to Southern Under Carbondale. He wrote a book called Man Not, which is really an excellent book in terms of talking about. Um, how black men sort of develop um, and the challenges that they confront. It's an excellent, it's an excellent book. Um, I recommend that any of you listeners get a hold of it. It's called Man Not by uh, Dr. Tommy Curry. But I also say that, you know, there's also a, 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 a misunderstanding, I think sometimes that we have, we have placed an inordinate um, value on folks who work in the academy. And, and we, we assume that, that um, their work Work is, is sometimes more important than the work that happens in communities. Mm -hmm. Because the reality is that most folks who work in the academy are only talking to other people who work in the academy, right? The average person in the neighborhood is not reading journal articles and they're not going to our conferences. And so one of the things that social media has done and podcasts like yours and others have done is that we have been able to take information to the community so that, that we don't, you know, we don't have, there's not a filter. We go straight to the community and say, this is what we know. This is what we understand. Uh, this is what works. I remember in the early stages of the pandemic, I was on a number of radio programs just explaining to folks about like some basic developmental things that would help them stay safe during the pandemic and about why people were, were understanding information the way that they were. And 
and again, that was because we had avenues to have a, a conversation directly with our communities, as opposed to having you know conversations at conferences with other scholars and other psychologists, right? But that but that information never really filters out to the community. So I think that social media podcasts um, have has created the proliferation of us. Now the question is like you know taking the information to our folks, of course. You know, when you do that, um, you don't get the same kind of accolades that you get when you do it in the academy. Mm-hmm. And again, and for me, it's just a function of okay, well, where is your allegiance? Like, is your is your goal here to to, to help heal our community, or is your goal here help heal our community? And as long as I get recognition along the way, right? And uh, I think that's you know, um, you know, a, a challenge for for folks, especially folks when you when your you know paycheck is tied to publications. Mm-hmm. and uh, research grants and research dollars, uh, which is very real. People got to pay bills and stuff. But the pipeline, the pipeline between Black scholarship uh, and policy is, is oftentimes either, either uh, closed off or clogged or non-existent, right? So when you're a white person and you're a scientist at John Hopkins, your ideas have a direct pipeline to, 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 white, to the White House. You, you, your stuff gets, gets heard and and gets evaluated in think tanks and black folks don't have that mechanism. So part of our challenge is to figure out, okay, well, we have to then rely on us giving information to our communities and our communities um, using that information intelligently to try and improve their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, and so because we can't rely on those systems. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, the work that I'm engaged in is trying to figure out, okay, well, what are the developmental mechanisms that you can put in place? Right. How do people process information? How do you get into it in, in, in ways that, that make sense to them? How do you present them information in terms of, uh, uh, how do you present information in a way that allows them to be able to act on it, right? So, and all those are things about like understanding information processing, which is a theory of developmental psychology, um, social learning theory, you know, so that you so you recognize that if you can present somebody information with with uh, really good analogies, then they can then find ways to apply it, right? But as long as it stays up in the stratosphere. Um, so those kinds of things, I think, you know, are important. Uh, and then again, working with folks like you, and others who are, you know, can, you know, can deal with acute traumas and, and figure out, okay, well, let's come with a strategy. I would say that one of the, the things that we should be doing that we're not doing is creating think tanks. Right. Especially what the Zoom technology has said is introduced to us as an opportunity for us all around the country to have think tanks. But now people, everybody, you don't have to fly everywhere, right? You don't have to worry about coming out your pocket for a ticket or a hotel. Right. You can simply say, okay, look, we're gonna meet once a month. Here's the agenda. It's all day, and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna do this once a month, for, you know, for for a year. And at the end of the year, we're gonna put together a position paper. And here's our findings. Da da da. We can do that regional. We can do that like we did for North Carolina. You know, you could do that for Georgia, or you could do it. You know, this is for Durham, this is for Charlotte. But again, you got to you you have to have the will. And, and my concern is that we have a dependency model, right? We are very much now if white folks come up with a grant that says, okay, we're gonna pay for you to have a think tank. All of a sudden, everybody wants to do it. But the idea of us just doing it on our own, right? Most of these college universities were founded by white folks who just got together and said, let's do it. You know, mm-hmm. Yale was founded that way. Harvard's founded that way. So. The, so that the the psychological enslavement that 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 impacts us who are also psychologists still is about that dependency model. Like it, it, it it's not it's not good enough unless some white folks or some institution that we revere sign off. And when all you need is basically eight or ten folks, 
making a commitment to say, okay, look, this is what we're going to study for this year. And we're going to come together and we're going to meet doing these Zoom, these Zoom conferences and we're going to compile a position paper and we're going to present that. You know, you present to the community, you present it to your city, you present it to your mayor. Um, so that to me is, is an opportunity that we are we are missing in this particular moment. Mm-hmm. You know, so in thinking about the I the concept of uh, creating a uh, all day workshop, uh, right? Well, and I, so I guess the difference is because academicians getting together and doing it versus just everybody getting together and doing it. But for me, at some point, the talking, you get into this thing where people are talking to hear themselves talk, intellectual masturbation. Uh, and, you know, so we're going to move. I'm thinking about our favorite author, Ayikwe Arma, right. um, and the, the book we weren't going to talk about tonight, but Kimmet in the House of Life. And in that book, how he so wonderfully describes this process of how people go to these conferences and they talk for each other and they just move the space and they go and they do it again, but nothing comes out of it, of any practicality that moves us forward as a people, as a, as a community. And so through his story, he is bringing that point, uh, bringing home that point and saying, how can we do this differently in a way that is going to manifest some tangible results that we all can feel and see and, and you know, it, we can have the energy of that moving as opposed to just words going back and forth? Yeah, so one of the things that, that Amar talks about in that book is about how all these conferences are built around just coming together to talk about the problem. Right, mm-hmm. and that they always agree that the problem's not solvable. So let's come back next year and talk about and the talk problem. Talk about it again, right? right? And then, and then, and then it's not it's yeah. not resolvable. Let's study let's study why it's not resolvable and come back next year, right? So right, it's right, an ongoing right. thing. Yeah, right. And and but but I think that you know, Amar's on to something. But but we also have to be honest that the nature of uh, inquiry in the social sciences is about finding problems, not solutions. Mm-hmm. Right. So. If you're doing cancer research, your, your job is to find solutions, not to, not to find more cancer, but to find solutions. If you are a sociologist or a psychologist or an economist, your job is to find a problem, right? Mm-hmm. And to outline that problem in elaborate detail. And if you're talking about any obstacles, it's all, all the obstacles are relative to your study, like problems you encounter in your study, not problems you encounter trying to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. So. We, so all of us are trained to think about finding problems, not solutions, right? In fact, nobody's dissertation is geared towards, you know, you don't get your dissertation because you found a solution. You get your dissertation you, because you you outlined the problem eloquently and you scoured this, this list. So, so we are trained to focus on problems. That's why the conferences look the way they look, because everybody's trained the same way. Find a problem, present, a, present the, an old problem in a new way. And so... It's not just a question of the conferences, it's a question of a new model, like a, 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 a different model that's focusing on like more action-oriented research. Like in other words, like why isn't why isn't the, the nature of uh, dissertation to be able to identify an existing problem and that you have to propose part of your dissertation is to propose a solution that is is, is possible, not probably, you know, like okay, like this is 
this is what I think is a solution. It may not, it may not actually hold true, but mm-hmm. why isn't that part of your dissertation that you got to actually offer a solution? And then, and then that's what you critiqued on. You critiqued right. on whether or not that solution is actually plausible or realistic or, or anchored in empirical research that already exists, right? So again, what, what we're doing is, again, preparing folks to continue the proliferation. So the conference is just an outgrowth of an industry that trains folks to think in terms of finding problems. And right? so and ultimately, so, you're going to be working on solutions and not dwelling in the problems. Come, right. though, when you finish the conference, you will be able to say these 10 things we can implement in the community and it's gonna bring about some change. Let's go see how that works. And then if you go and five of them work and five of them don't, then we can come back and the next month make some modifications, but at least we are doing something that has some practicality that people can use in real time in the community. The problem is is that that you would have to change the nature of how you do conferences and you'd have to socialize people because conferences are built around the intellectual as performers, right? And so you go to the plenary session because you want to be entertained, right? Like we've been to a number of conferences. The number of times you see like at least 50% of the audience actually taking notes is rare, right? It'd be like, it'd be like eight people, it'd be a thousand, it'd be eight people taking notes. So in any situation, you're teaching a class and you look up and, and nine percent of your class is not taking notes, you know they're not there to learn. Mm-hmm. They're there to be entertained, right? That's a, the basic classroom protocol. So but but we accept this in conferences that you go to a conference, you go to a plenary session, and you look around and nobody's taking notes. Nobody's taking notes. They're going to workshops, nobody's t- taking notes because people are not there to learn, they're there to be entertained. When people want to learn, you you take notes so you can remember what, what happened. And so you'd have to change the, the, the model, right? So you'd have to have people who are there to work. So you'd have to have more of like a workshop thing. So people would have to actually do preparatory work before they came to the to this. And then there's a problem about just funding. Like who wants to pay to come to do more work, right? Like that's that's the other problem, right? So so there so so you have to then so a re-education process that would have to occur. That's what I'm saying that you can do this in terms of, of a think tank model right. in ways that are that are different than you can do it in a conference model. Right? We, we all know this, like an A, B, side and other conferences. Like a lot of times, you look at where where the convention is being held to determine whether or not you want to go. Because I'm also there for a vacation, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, so if it's, if, it's, if it's a city that ain't popping, like I'm probably gonna pass, right? So, so again, people are looking for vacation, looking for entertainment. So you have to have a you have to have another model. Uh, and again, you know, if you, the, the think tank model can work. I mean, ASCAC was really built around that. It was built around sort of like the think tank model, right? At least, you know, cities, they call them study groups. So there's a willingness there. And that's sort of what Armand's talking about in, in, um, in Kim in the House of Life. Like, okay, we can have these like really like study groups devoted to specific problems. And then you come together as a body to figure out, okay, well, how, how does all of this come together? Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, we don't have the willingness for that because it, it means that nobody gets to be the star. And in a system where people love star treatment and love to say that this person, I mean, how can you say somebody is the, is the, is the most brilliant intellectual, right? It's 8 billion people on the planet. You don't know all of them, right? Like, you know, so like this whole thing about like, you know, this person is the best writer. Instead of saying, look, this is my favorite writer. I don't know if they're the best. I ain't read everybody out there, right? right? This whole idea of we always have to kind of like, you know, we, we have the process of we eliminate everybody so that we can always have one individual that stands above everybody else. Mm-hmm. And it gets in the way of the kind of collaborative work that is necessary, right? You don't get an atomic bomb without the Manhattan Project. And the Manhattan Project had to bring all these great minds together and force them to work together to solve a particular problem. 
In the absence of that, it's hard to do. So that's so part of the challenge is that you got to find folks. That's what I'm saying. If you can do the, you can do these think tank models, and individuals can pick the folks, like the, the folks that you want to work with, right? And all you got to do is say, look, you know, we post it on our website. This is this is our finding. People can look at it, you know, and take it for what it's worth or what it's not worth. It's it's community service. You can do it in your in your city. Okay, you can say, okay, look, for Durham, we got a think tank in Durham that look at challenges in the community. We look at it from these areas, you know, these not all nine areas of people activity. We looked at this for a year and this is our report. That's a service, mm-hmm. right? Because then you, you can then, that becomes something that becomes part of the, of the city council. The mayor can think about it. It becomes talking points, you know, that kind of thing. So there's room for us to really move on. And instead of us always having this conversation about, okay, what's the black agenda and being mad at Ice Cube because Ice Cube thought he should put forth for his agenda when look, everybody could have done that. And just simply say, okay, look, but the people who really have the expertise to do it didn't. Um, so I think that what I'm, what I'm advocating here is a different model, a, a way of rethinking how we train um, researchers uh, in the social sciences, rethinking how we actually, you know, one of the things that's really good about counseling clinical is, is the whole internship and practicum that you actually get some hands-on experience. That's not true in other in, in a lot of like it's not true in developmental or social psychology. Mm-hmm. Or so you don't really you don't actually get any hands-on experience, right? right? So by the time you by the time you become a clinician, you've been supervised, you've been trained in a particular way to sort of how to engage real world problems. So the challenge is, you know, again, and a lot of times when you're looking around, the, the folks who are doing the academic psychology are out of touch with what's happening in the world outside the academy. Exactly. Right? So the stuff that they're writing about, the stuff they write about in the journals, like, yeah, that ain't what I'm seeing in my practice. That, that, that might be good for what you publish it, but that ain't what I'm seeing in my practice. Right. And and I think that that's part of the, you know, the the way that we have so as a developmentalist, I think about okay, well, how does how does a community develop actionable knowledge? that serves the community, right? What are the mechanisms and processes that we need to have in place to do that? And now we have all of the technology to do it. You just have to have the willingness. It's like that Peloton bike, right? It's great technology, but if you don't, want, if you don't have the will to get on that bike and, and, and ride like you're supposed to, you just wasted your money. Exactly. So it's the, same, it's the same process. So I think that we have to change the conversation. We have to change a lot of these conversations, conversations around what does it mean to be a healer and healing and all, because all these things are really, they are noise. They get in the way of the work, and they focus on individuals and accolades, and not about actually finding ways to help make Black people whole again. Mm-hmm. So you know, that brings us right to um, Baba Ayikwe Arma and his work, which is seminal work that deals with all of these concepts that you touched on right here in this last little part: um, individualism versus community, right? Competition versus uh, cooperation, um, family versus individual, all of these different concepts that he forced, he challenges us to think about in a way that is really pro- profound for me because it's, in a, it's, it's intertwined in the story. Uh, even the concept of how we come to appreciate and understand um, doing this healing work, right? It's not, it's not um, positioned as me, the authority, gonna tell you what to do. It's more of, I'm gonna ask questions to pull out the genius in you that, that's already, the God in you that's already there that knows, but that has right. just been clouded over by society. 
and the, the, and, and the negative things that society would put forth. Um, but he's, this, to introduce him a bit, he's, he's written probably at least 10 books, I would say. Um, and you know, my favorite, of course, is, is the one we're gonna talk about today, The Healers, because right. it, it right. relates so much to psychology. Um, but right, 1A for me is, is 2000 Seasons, which is uh, probably one of the most intense books that I've ever read. Uh, I always tell people when they're going to read it, <laughs> read it twice, because the first time you ain't going to know what it is. You're <laughs> like, what, is, what in the world is this? <laughs> and then it makes sense the second time you, you come back through it. Uh, but just work that is thought-provoking that makes you question. And that's the other thing I think is important, questioning everything, being a critical thinker and looking at why are we doing the things that we're doing? These are all things that come forth in his books and challenge us to push against the, the paradigm we're in currently and look to creating a newer, better paradigm that's, that centers us as African people and pushes us forward in the, with the thrust of excellence and the ability to accomplish and, and do wonderful, great things. And we have a cliffhanger. We're going to talk about those wonderful things in our next episode. So be sure to tune in for next week's episode where we'll pick up with part two of this discussion where we get into the healing aspects of Armaz's works and how this relates to the work of psychology that we do on multiple levels. So thank you for tuning in and we'll look forward to talking with you next time. Remember to be a critical thinker and continue to work to align your actions and your values in everything that you are doing. Until next time, take it easy. Peace. In closing, I want to remind you to always be a critical thinker as it relates to your mental health and well-being. We always want to inspire you to consciously question your choices to ensure that you are doing those things that bring you happiness and fulfillment. Please don't forget to subscribe to our channel and share the information with others who might benefit. Connect with us on Twitter at HeartMindHealer and visit our Facebook and Instagram pages at Alashe Center, A-L-A-S-E Center. Our website is Alashe.net. A-L-A-S-E dot net. And feel free to contact us for any consultations or questions you might have. Things that I might be missing, running too fast.